Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Jasmine Brown. She's the author of Twice as Hard, the stories of Black women who fought to become physicians. The book tells the stories of Black women who overcame incredible odds to become doctors, a struggle that continues today. Jasmine, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. As a college student in St. Louis, something happened to you that seemed to have started you down the path towards what would eventually become this book. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah. So I was working in the lab. I had started biomedical research back in high school, and I was really passionate about it. And I was participating in that research in St. Louis, had had a few weeks off. This was like summer break and then the start of the next semester. Went into the lab and my car key wasn't working. I kept swiping. I thought it was something wrong with the card reader because that was something that I saw a lot over the summer. But then eventually I figured it was something wrong with my key. And it was embarrassing because there was a guy standing behind me waiting for me to let him in. And so then when I realized that, okay, it's not working, I asked him to let me in and and then things seemed to switch. Like he didn't even introduce himself. I didn't know who he was. But when I asked him to let us into the lab, he started asking me all these questions, seemed really concerned that my reasoning for entering wasn't like that I wasn't really supposed to be there. Even when I showed him my photo ID, um, and that moment is really when I started to feel a bit out of place in the lab and realized that there weren't really any other Black people there. Did that just become a moment that you started being more aware, I guess, of this isolation? Yeah, up to that point, I didn't, I wasn't fully aware that I was the only Black person in the lab. Like there, so this was a mega lab, which means that my PI, her lab, there was maybe eight of us, but then there were three or four PIs within that entire, like sharing that space. So close to maybe around 30 people there. Um, Yeah. And I, I just didn't realize I was the only Black person there. And then I started noticing it where I went, like we would have these um talks where many different labs came and watched a scientist present their research and I'd realized I was the only black person in the room even though I was just a student um and then smaller incidences where maybe someone looked at me and seemed uncomfortable or seemed to like create distance between me from like the train station to getting on the medical campus where I did my research, I just started noticing those things more and it made me feel really out of place. There was a moment of realization that you wrote about that actually took me by surprise and made me kind of think back to my own experiences Mm -hmm. in that. And we're talking, this is in the last few years. This, you know, is not something that happened decades ago, but you wrote that you had never had a black woman physician. Mm. And I started thinking about this and I'm like, I don't think I have either. Yeah. That was, that must've been a, a, a big moment for you thinking about that. 
Yeah. So that happened. The first time I met a Black woman physician was when I was doing this research um, for my master's. And I think when I met her, that's when I realized that it was the first time. And it was really meaningful. And then soon after, I actually went to a conference that um, was held as a part of the National Medical Association, which is this national conference for Black physicians. And then being in this room filled with Black physicians of like all genders was, it was just incredible. Um, I felt really seen. I felt more that I fit into space. Wow. And so you also were a Rhodes Scholar and that's where I think the idea for this book really kind of coalesced for you. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Why was it so important for you to write about this? Because I imagine that there were more people like me out there who had never met a Black woman physician, who growing up had been made to feel like they didn't belong in this like medical research space. And for me, I, I felt like a big thing that kept me going was my parents. Um, they encouraged me. And while they weren't physicians, I just, I looked up to them a lot and felt hope um, in them. And so by having like classmates or other people telling me that I couldn't succeed in school because I'm Black, which to them meant that I was stupid, Um it was discouraging at times, but I also kind of flipped it to like prove them wrong. But a big part of that was because I had that strong support system. And I know a lot of people don't have that. And so by sharing these stories, I hope that I could at least make people aware of some role models that could give them hope along their journeys. I want to talk about the first Black woman who graduated with a medical degree. This is Rebecca Lee Crumpler. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little about her. Yeah, so Dr. Crumpler, she grew up with her aunt. And her aunt was kind of like a nurse. Um, she didn't have formal training. And at that time, there actually weren't even formal nursing schools that existed, um, which was really incredible for me to learn. But she saw her nurse, her her aunt as somebody that was caring for her community. And then she decided that she wanted to do the same. Eventually she went to medical school at New England Female Medical College in Boston, in the Boston area. This was before slavery was illegal throughout the country. So there were still other Black people who were slaves at the time that she had entered medical school. And the Civil War started up while she was there. She actually had to leave, she had, had to pause her time in medical school because it became dangerous for her to be in Boston because there were uh, white Bostonians against the end of slavery who started um, terrorizing Black neighborhoods close to where she went to medical school. Um, so she left, came back after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed 
and then graduated medical school only 14 months after it was signed. Um, then she went down to Virginia, I believe, trying to care for those Black Americans who had just been released from bondage. And even in that space where there were other physicians who had a similar mission of caring for these Black patients, she was ostracized. Um, people told her that the doctor, other doctors told her that her MD didn't stand for anything more than mule driver. The pharmacist would not honor the prescriptions that she gave to her patients, but she was focused, um, determined to care for other people, um, to be a healthcare provider. And that's what she did. And it's just incredible to me that, and I don't even know if she knew that she was the first, like people didn't celebrate her at that time. Mm. Um, one of the big things that was shocking to me when I was like studying her story was that there is no confirmed image of her that exists. And a lot of the images that are circulated attached to her name are actually of other women. Um, and I feel like that just pointed to how little she was acknowledged or appreciated during her time because no one even felt like it was no one felt like it was important enough to even save her image um to acknowledge this achievement yeah one of the things that you wrote about that i found really striking is um, when she was in virginia and treating you know black people who had just been freed from slavery mm -hmm. that for some of those people she was probably the first doctor they had ever been to in their lives mm -hmm. Yeah. What what was it like for you when you found that in your research? I think powerful to think about the impact that one person can make. It's it's possible that um some of them had even if they hadn't encountered a doctor themselves, like heard stories about what doctors do to slaves. Um mm. and there's a lot of work like medical apartheid, like outlines that a lot on how slaves were used as guinea pigs and mistreated their slave owners, told the researchers or physicians like, yes, you can use my slave to do this study. Um, but the, the Black Americans did not give that consent. Um, so prior to meeting her, they might have been afraid of the medical system, rightfully so, because of how they were treated. But then to see this person who looked like them, shared their lineage, uh, caring for them and treating them with dignity, it was probably very empowering for them and gave them more hope in the medical system, which is really important. She wrote a book when she was 52, a book of medical discourses, and it was the only medical book written by a 19th century African-American woman. Mm -hmm. What was the book about and how important was this book to the community that she served? So the book was created, it seems, to make medical information more accessible to Black communities. It focused on the health of women and children. And I think by providing that insight and at a time when a lot of Black people were still mistreated, 
um, within society, which then bled into how they were treated within the like medical system. This empowered them to take care of their own health to the best set of their abilities using this knowledge. Like I, when I think about all that I'm learning in medical school, I feel really empowered to keep up my own health. Um, and I feel like it's really privileged information that everybody should have access to, but it's hard for everyone to have access to because it's there's so many complexities, there's so much information there. Uh, but she was doing that work to make it more accessible, which is then helping to reduce the health disparities that existed then, um, unfortunately still exist today. Mm. I know that you talked about this a little bit earlier that, you know, she, she wasn't celebrated, you know, Dr. McCoon Smith was the first African-American to earn a medical degree. We know that name mm -hmm. or the name of Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, who was the first female doctor. But as you mentioned, she wasn't celebrated. There were no news articles written. There was no first, you know, female black physician statue, mm -hmm. you know, that was put up. What do you want the world to know about her? I want them to know, for one, that she existed. Like, I think that even today, when um, some people try to make people like me feel like we don't belong in those spaces, it's this message that we haven't had an impact, we can't succeed. But this is a woman 150 years ago, a Black woman 150 years ago, who was succeeding. And that kind of throws those bigoted claims out the window. Like if that was true that my identity as a black person or as a woman prevented me from succeeding in medicine, then how did Dr. Crumpler do that back then in the midst of the societal turmoil that was happening? And how have all these other black women throughout history made such an impact if we are not capable based off of our identity. So I think by raising that awareness of her success, her resilience in the face of the immense barriers that were up against her, hoping like wanting to give other people hope that they can also succeed despite the obstacles that they may face. There's a connection that you wrote about several times in your book, this having to face this idea that as a black woman, you're not smart enough, that you're not good enough. And we see you write about that. This is the same fight that so many of these women faced mm -hmm. as well. How, how do we change that? How do we battle against something that just seems so ridiculous in 2023? Yeah. I think that these claims are able to persist because there's not enough, well, what I like to believe is that it's because there's not enough evidence in people's faces that go against it. Um, so I never learned about Black women physicians. I rarely learned about Black physicians, women physicians in general growing up in high school, in college, even when I was doing this master's in history of medicine, the narrative focused on the impact that white men have had in medicine throughout history. Um, when you look in 
hospitals or universities, the portraits that are hung up, the images that are believed to be important enough to be remembered are oftentimes white men. And so then even when those messages are not explicit, um, people can look around and they're just like, well, that's not who I'm learning about. Um, and so I feel like when there is more recognition, appreciation, and sharing of these stories, then that can help at least in some way to dis dismantle this like prejudice assertion. I want to talk a little bit about another another one of the women that you wrote about, and this is Dr. Dorothy Farabee. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that stood out about her story is that uh, she lived in a time when she couldn't vote. I mean, this was the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. She was the direct descendant of slaves. And she's another woman who lived in this society who was adamant that she wasn't smart enough to do what she wanted to do. But what I found interesting is that her immediate circles, her parents, mm -hmm. her family, she was cherished. She was encouraged. That must have made such a difference to her in many ways. Yeah, I, I would think so. Like, I, I think that a lot of these women, when they were faced with this prejudice, they tried to put blinders on in a sense and stay focused on their goals. And having that tight-knit community who is so supportive of them um, and reinforce that they were capable of great things. I think that was really important in helping them to get through and keep the positive image of themselves. She was one of the presidents of the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, which is one of the most venerated sororities in the country today. One of the many initiatives that Alpha Kappa Alpha was responsible for is the Mississippi Health Project. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, so Dr. Fairby after finishing her medical training, she partnered with her sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, to provide care for Black families, Black sharecropping families in Mississippi. Um, and this was around the time of the Great Depression, seeing the impact that that was having on that community. So she led this initiative and worked with dozens of other Black women in the sorority who were healthcare providers. Initially, they tried to take the train down to Mississippi from D.C., but because of the segregation within the train system, um, there was only the cars in the back of the train that they were allowed to be on, and the ticket master told her that he wasn't going to let her order all those tickets because that would take up all the spots or too many of the spots for the Black people. So then they got in a caravan of cars and drove down to Mississippi. When they went there, they spoke to the heads of the, the plantation owners the white men that were that owned those plantations and told them about their idea to um, set up these cl clinics to provide care for these black families. Initially, they were against it. Eventually, they said, okay, you can go do this. But then when the women set up the clinics, nobody came. They mm. found out that 
the plantation owners told the black sharecroppers that they could not leave the plantation to go to these clinics to get health care that they needed. So the women decided to pack up all their supplies in their cars and then drive from plantation to plantation to give these people the health care that they needed. They provided them with vaccinations. They provided them with advice on uh, how to avoid malnutrition and various other things. And this was the first mobile health clinic in the U.S. And the sorority recently um, started up the mobile clinic again. It stopped because of World War II, but they recently started up again because of COVID. And they were going to different neighborhoods, providing vaccines, COVID vaccines, or COVID tests. So yeah, it's really incredible. And and I'm actually a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha. So I have this uh, personal tie to it and have seen a bit of the impact that the sorority has made. And, and just that power of these women having the shared drive to make a positive impact, care for their community, and then what they're able to do when they come together and work towards a shared goal. Many of the women that you write about, we're talking about women from the mid to late 1800s, the early to mid 1900s, and and some, you know, that are contemporary, but it might be easy to read this book and say, oh, well, those were different times. Mm -hmm. How would you answer someone who thinks that way? I would call it denial. Um, For me, what was so powerful about these stories when I was learning about them was that I felt like they paralleled my own life. Like these women from 100 years ago being told that they're not good enough or they can't succeed because they're Black and a woman. But I was told the same thing. These women who were told that they're just there. So um, more recently, in the past few decades after affirmative action, being told that they only got into school because they're Black, because of affirmative action. I was told that same thing. Um, I, I remember that when I was in high school. We It was my senior year. We're in the process of applying to colleges. And this um, person who I thought was my friend, she told me like, oh, yeah, you're going to get into these schools because you're Black. And I'm just like, but you know me. Like, I'm a straight-A student. I've taken AP classes. I'm a varsity athlete. I'm a president in multiple clubs. But you're reducing my value and the reason I would get into these places because I'm Black, because of affirmative action. Um, it was just striking to me to see the same narrative, these same messages repeated over and over again throughout history and through these women's stories. So I like I do think that there are things that have gotten better. Um, like Dr. Edith Irby Jones, who in the 1940s, she was the first black person to racially integrate a medical school in the South. This is um in the midst of the Jim Crow South, people, these institutions were segregated, which meant that 
there were almost no medical schools available to Black students in the South. The only school available was Meharry Medical College um, because back to 1910 with the Flex Report, they recommended the closing of almost every Black medical school. Uh, Abraham Flexner saying that Black physicians should only treat Black patients and the fewer Black physicians, the better. So then you fast forward a few decades, there's only so many um, opportunities for a Black person to become a physician in the South. Dr. Irby Jones, she wasn't allowed to eat in the same, in the cafeteria, at her school's cafeteria because her white classmates ate there. She wasn't allowed to use the women's bathroom because her white female classmates used that bathroom. Like, yes, that level of segregation, I'm grateful, does not exist today. Um, but some of the more insidious messages about inf inferiority um, and then also some more explicit limitations on who we allow to be promoted to a certain level or how much do we pay a Black person or a Black woman versus a white man. That still exists today, unfortunately. Well, I, I, I know that there is still work to, to be done, but I think that your book is going to be an important part of helping people realize the history, the way that these women should be celebrated. And I'm really looking forward to what you do in the next few decades. Jasmine, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks so much for having me. It was really great. Jasmine Brown is the author of Twice as Hard, the stories of Black women who fought to become physicians. It's available now. You can find more information on her website at jasminebrownauthor.com. Coming up next week, I talk with Lisa Klein-Ransom. Her new book is For Lamb, the story of an interracial friendship between two nations. Coming up next week, I talk with Lisa Klein-Ransom. Her new book is For Lamb, the story of an interracial friendship between two teenage girls that goes tragically wrong. Set in the Jim Crow South of the late 1930s, it's a moving and needed story that pays homage to the female victims of white supremacy. I hope you'll join me for that conversation. If you're enjoying Off the Page, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast app. Or you can send an email to offthepage at wskg.org if you'd like to let me know what you think about the program. Especially if you've read one of the books featured on the show. I'd love to know what you think about it. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Sorakis. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. <laughs>